Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty, turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother, Lorenza Marsala. The Sicilian Inheritance comes out on April 2nd, but it is available for pre-order right now wherever you get your books. And if you pre-order and email me your receipt to joe.piazza at gmail.com or DM me at Instagram, I will give you a free lifetime subscription to our newsletter Over the Influence. We'll be posting exclusive pictures, videos, and show transcripts for the very new season of Committed coming out in February. So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book. Committed is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello. Welcome to a very special bonus episode of Committed. I recorded this interview with Paul and Sonia Kicks over a year ago. We were going to run it next season, but we're running it now because I just felt like these two were my kindred spirits in so many different ways. Paul and Sonia are both writers, and they've recently been collaborating on a book together about the civil rights movement and race in America. Paul is a white man, Sonia is a black woman, and I have also been collaborating on a book about race and social justice in America. It is called We Are Not Like Them, and it's in the world this week, guys. It is out, and I'm so nervous to put it out there, but I wanted to make sure that I could share it with you guys And I thought the best way to tell you that I have this new book out is to introduce you to this couple that also collaborates on books together. I thought a lot about today's episode when I was writing We Are Not Like Them. Paul and Sonia, like my writing partner and I, are an interracial pair. And because of that, they've had to have a lot of very difficult conversations about race. A lot of the conversations that I had with my co-author, Christine, ended up in our novel. And our hope is that We Are Not Like Them helps people start a conversation about race that they might not otherwise have had. Paul and Sonia really try to do the same thing. And in fact, I think their episode gives us a starting point to talk about race and relationships in a way that I haven't necessarily heard before. So I just wanted to come here and tell you why we're releasing this episode now, why it feels so special to me at this moment, and also ask you very humbly to order a copy of We Are Not Like Them and let me know what you think, because I cannot wait to discuss it with you and with our entire community. Now, without further ado, Paul and Sonia Kicks and their spectacular love story. You know, you are the father of two black children, two black boys. And you have a responsibility to raise two black men who understand how society will perceive them, how, you know what I mean? Like, it's a really complicated, complicated thing. But like that fear that Paul doesn't necessarily, Paul doesn't have. Paul had never been stopped 
by the police for driving in a neighborhood where, you know, he'd never been followed in a store, which I have been. He's never been denied service because of his race, which I have been. You know, he's never not received a, a promotion, you know, experienced racism at work, which I have tons of stories about people who've been discriminated against, friends that I know, myself. And so knowing that kind of responsibility, you know, what I felt like I needed to share with my children or what my parents shared with me, I needed Paul to understand that. Sonia and Paul Kicks have been married since 2007. She's a black woman from Texas, from Houston, and he's a white dude from Iowa. There were zero black people in Paul's graduating class. Living as an interracial couple, Paul living as the only white person in his household that now includes three children, that forces the entire family to have difficult conversations about race on a regular basis. Yeah, I remember one conversation with the boys after George Floyd died. They're like, you know, why are the police doing this? Are all police racist? Are all white people racist? And then when I said, well, you know, I just, we, we mommy and daddy love you boys very much. We, we think you guys can do anything you want in this life. Walker, one of our sons, said, we'll just have to be careful, right? And it was the way in which that I paused, that I could see that in that pause, the boys sort of, I think, understood that, no, even being careful is not going to necessarily protect them. It's been more than 50 years since Loving First Virginia struck down laws banning interracial marriage. And some might take it for granted that that means life is much less complicated for interracial couples in America today. It is in a lot of ways. But in the face of today's national reckoning on race and systemic racism, couples like Paul and Sonia also have to figure out how to best navigate race in their household. How can Paul as a white man be empathetic to how Sonia feels watching a police shooting of a black man? How can he raise black boys in a world that already sees them as black men? Can he ever understand what it feels to be pulled over by a white police officer? as a Black person. Navigating all of this can be exhausting for everyone. Talking about race can be exhausting for everyone. But it is also completely necessary. I would always get questions, and I still do, because people question, are you Black? You know, what is your heritage? And so with my children, I wanted to make it very clear for them, they're African-American. And that's how they were going to identify because... Because that's how America was going to see That's how America them. sees them. Yeah. And so I had to have that, you know, I don't I don't think you didn't anticipate that conversation. No, I was just thinking like, we'll just, they'll just be biracial kids and like, they'll be half black, half white. Like, what's the deal? It's like, and then you were like, no, 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 no. It's like, if they're black at all, basically, they're black, right? Yeah, well, it's it's perception. People are going yeah. to see them as being different and People, seeing yep. them as, as being... So white America is going to see them as being black and they need to be prepared for that. And, and so yeah, and those so, like, were deeper conversations much about deeper. race. Yeah, Paul and I definitely have had a lot of really tough conversations, even though we've been together for so long, are completely different when it comes to race. I'm Joe Piazza, and this is Committed.
Sonia and Paul met in a bar in Dallas in 2004. Back then, they were both working as journalists. Do you want to tell the story, Paul, and then I'll tell the right version? She's what she, What's going to end up happening here, Joe, is she's going to interrupt. So I'll go ahead and start. Yeah, and then she's start. going to amend, amend, not yeah. interrupt. So it was 2004. It was a media meet and greet at a wine bar outside Dallas. I was working then at an alternative weekly. And it was one of those things, Joe, where like you step in and literally there were these curtains that had to part to go to the quote like private banquet room where all the media meet and greet people would be. And then as I part those curtains, I see her and she is stunning. And I am like, I need to talk to her. I don't think that's true, but I want you to leave that in because I like that. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm like, why would you want to amend that? Keep I know, right? Like, I, li I like that. That's the great. So keep going. Because I thought she was so beautiful, the first thing I thought of was, I need to get a double whiskey as quickly as I can. And so I go to the bar and I order not one, but two whiskeys and I'm holding them both. And the way that I remember it, like, that's the moment when you stop by. Is that right? No, that's completely wrong. And so when he walked in, I mean, he's like 10 feet tall. So when he walked in, I was like, oh my gosh, who is this guy? And so I'm usually very awkward and nervous around very attractive men. And so I was like, well, I'm just, I'm going to try and be very normal, which I think I was. I yeah, was very she, good. Okay. Well, we were flirty right away. And then the way that I tried to like further the flirtiness was, and here, I know you remember this. Oh yeah, that was the good part. I said, guess what? And she goes, what? And I go, I drive an 88 Cadillac. And she's like, what? Which transcends race. I yes, think. yes, transcends everything. I take her outside and she like walks around it. And I, it was in pristine condition. She takes her walk around it and she's like, wow. I mean, it's just beautiful. <laughs> that night we went to another bar after that. And then do you want to say like how we ended that night? The first yes. Because I think you remember this. Yes, you were drunk. Yes. And watching, there was a baseball game and I, I don't drink. Joe, so the two whiskeys had become multiple. Whiskeys. Multiple. And so I wanted you to call me. So I put my number in your phone. Yes. For you. Yes. Because you were not moving fast enough. Yes. And then you said, call I me. I pinky swear and, that you were going to call me. And then. You I, didn't. I did, but I waited three days to do it. And yeah, then, and then it was, and then it was basically like, we were inseparable. Like we were. One time, shortly thereafter, I started to spend so much time at Sonia's studio loft downtown that when I went back to my own apartment in East Dallas, my electricity bill one month was three cents. Well, <laughs> yeah. So like, that's how much time we were spending together. And like, that's how much time we've basically spent together ever since. Wow. And so you guys were suddenly inseparable. Why was that? What was it about the other person that you were like, this, I just want more. I want to be with this person all the time. Uh, so I'll let you go first because I feel like I'm talking too much. You are. <laughs> I just adore Sonia, by the way, and the way that she corrects Paul in the sweetest way possible. Like she's firm and she's funny when she does it, but she's still like, mm -mm. no, 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 kind sir. Can't help it. I love this woman. I had not dated a lot. And so when I met Paul, he was, you know, he was just really smart, really fun to be around. What I think was really difficult for me was that our backgrounds are so different. I'm from Houston. My family is a working class family, inner city. 
And Paul grew up on a farm in Iowa where there's not a lot of diversity. No. Not a lot no. of diversity on There was farm. no black person in my graduating high school class. There were only 44 people in my graduating yeah. high school class, but none of them were black. So there really wasn't a question. Like we just felt this, we just felt this very, I think, very comfortable feeling with each other. And then I think for me, you know, as an African-American woman, I really felt like, okay, is this going to be okay with his family? Is this going to be something that we can, you know, really pursue right away? Did you sense that at all, Paul? That, that we I could was, pursue it? Yeah. I mean, was that even like a question to you? Like, Oh, yeah. I or? just like, I, the, so the thing that I loved about her right away was she was smart as hell. She was funny as hell. And she was just absolutely beautiful. Like she was oh, one well. of the most Look elegant, you. graceful women. There was like an Audrey Hepburn quality to her that I was just immediately drawn to, just like someone who is stately and, but, but also though she had her refinements, she didn't necessarily hold them up as heirs. I'm course, also very was, funny. I said that already. You did? Yes. Cause I'm, okay. I, 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 I led with that. that in oh, fact. okay. I led I with that. Okay. Thank you. Yes. For me, I was like, this is kind of who I've been. He was hooked. For. He was hooked. She was hooked. But there was something else. Paul was also just a little bit, more than a little bit, younger than Sonia. I was 23 at the time and Sonia was 30. I was 30. That was actually the thing that was probably for the both of us, the thing that we had to get used to. Like, I remember being 23 and very much wanting to go out to the bars and the clubs all the time. And Sonia being Sonia, a woman who can sleep up to 13 hours a day, was very much on like... On a good day. On a, yeah, was very much like, let's just stay in and let's just go to bed. <laughs> oh, I love bed. I love sleep. Right. Thank you, Joe. Sleep is amazing. And so... Sleep is amazing. Thank you. Yeah. That's a big age gap. That's a, not a huge age gap when you're 33 and 40, maybe. Yeah. But it's big when you're 23, because a 23-year-old, especially 23-year-old male, is just maybe not fully formed as a human being yet. Oh, I completely agree. Like, 22 to 25, you go from being like a almost an adolescent to, okay, now I have to fully make it on my own. I have to be an adult now. And yeah. I think it helped as well that we were in the same profession, right? Like I was doing feature writing and investigative reporting. Sonia was doing more lifestyle yeah, stuff. I was doing uh, lifestyle work. But we were still both working journalists and we were still we were still both lovers of the written word. Like we had tons of books at home. And that was another thing around which we bonded. Yeah. yeah. You're kind of a like a literary you're more hoardy toity with your Yeah. So so like yeah, like He's very highbrow. And this is how he was at 23, right, Joe? So you have this, like, kid who's he's wearing flip-flops on one hand when we're going out to parties, but he's having these incredibly, you know, profound conversations well, with profound, people. Okay, well, not like, profound, but I'm but, trying to be yeah. nice. I want to, you know. <laughs> but he's having these really incredible conversations with people, to me, which was, like, just this incredible wisdom, like, beyond his years, and so, you know, like any, I think any good partner, I looked at your flaws and I was like, I can fix, I can fix that. I can yes, fix those yes. flops, but mm -hmm. the intellect, like I, I, you know, I was like, okay, well that's on point. So we're good. So yeah, <laughs> he had what I call like a very small town haircut, you know, maybe like he had some bangs that I wasn't mm -hmm. really feeling. And I was like, I can fix that. I can get rid of those bangs. I yeah, can. Yeah, exactly. 
tell Paul all the time, like we've been together for such a long time through all these like incredibly formative years, you know, since he was younger. And I'm like, I take full credit for that. Like <laughs> he dresses so well now, you know, like he's, that's all me. <laughs> that's me. Right, Paul? Yes. It's, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, same. I feel the same exact way. She could fix those bangs. There were a lot of things about Paul that Sonia was like, I can do this. I can work with you. But they did still come from very different backgrounds. Still, that actually didn't matter that much. Paul's family loved Sonia from the very beginning. Now, he grew up in a town called Hubbard, which is very small. It's outside of Des Moines. About an hour outside yeah, of Des Moines. Yeah, very small. It's a farm, you know, it's a farm town. And I had never been any place like that. And I remember going home with you for Christmas and your grandfather, right? It's yeah. a huge gathering. And all these, you know, cousins, and everyone was there and everyone made me feel so incredibly welcome, which I was not expecting. But then your grandfather gave this amazing, you know, he gave this amazing speech of love about the holidays and everyone coming together. And he made a point to welcome me and to say not only welcome me, but he wished, you know, he, he looked forward to seeing me back there for many Christmases to come. And I was so touched by that, that it, it really took me. Also, your mom, Joy, she was wonderful. I remember your mom had taken, when she came to meet me, she had taken all these pictures of us. And your mom went around and showed people all of these pictures of me. So in my mind, it was like, so there would be no surprises, you know, when I showed up <laughs> at church. But even such a small gesture like that made such a huge impact. And, and my family... Did you feel like, were you worried about racism in any way? Yeah. I mean, I had never been to Iowa before. I come from Houston, which is this huge town. And, you know, I'm going to Iowa and going to a state that I necessarily didn't think was culturally diverse. And then going from this state in this large city to this very small city, you know, you which Des Moines? I, from Des Moines, a larger yeah. city to Hubbard, which was very oh, small, yeah, small, like yeah. even smaller than what I had considered a small town in Texas. Yeah. And going there and knowing based on the questions I asked you that there was no diversity, yeah. right? To wonder how I would be accepted or even when I'd be accepted. Yeah. And I, I've always felt like there's, and I've written about this multiple times in the past. I actually feel that Iowa and the Upper Plains are, if not racially diverse, ideologically very diverse and very, in certain factions, very opening and welcoming. I was surprised because not only was I, you know, African-American, I was also older I felt like, oh, well, maybe I have like these two kind of spotlights on me that maybe they're going to be uncomfortable with, but they've never been like his extended family, his friends. I mean, for the most part, they're all like, why would you want to be with this guy? Like, <laughs> <laughs> now, what I will say when I went to Houston, I was nervous because I didn't know how exactly I would be received. Like, Because you're so big. You're like 10 feet tall. Yes. And that was the same thing, though. Like, I was the only white guy for quite a while, especially at your grandma's place in Fifth Ward. Yeah. So there, for me... Well, no, my aunt is also... I haven't... But I, I understand what you're saying, but it's not... I mean, it, it's not... You were in a... This was going to add about Houston is... So in a weird way, like, I felt very at ease in Houston because Sonia's grandmother, Teresa was basically my grandmother Melba, right? These are both working class women who are full of love, 
who want to welcome anybody who comes into their house. And for me, like hanging out in Fifth Ward and then just more broadly speaking in Houston just felt very natural, even though, you know, I didn't look like anybody around me in those neighborhoods. Yeah. And I think the same, exactly the same when I went to Hubbard on that trip and then on future trips, I always feel incredibly at home there. That's not to say that like we haven't encountered in instances where we were not welcomed, but it was never within our own family. No. So the two of them were madly in love and completely inseparable. They dated for a few years, but they both knew they were going to get married pretty early on. More on that after a quick break. Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty, turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother, Lorenza Marsala. The Sicilian Inheritance comes out on April 2nd, but it is available for pre-order right now wherever you get your books. And if you pre-order and email me your receipt to joe.piazza at gmail.com or DM me at Instagram, I will give you a free lifetime subscription to our newsletter Over the Influence. We'll be posting exclusive pictures, videos, and show transcripts for the very new season of Committed coming out in February. So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book. Sonia, much like me, is not the kind of person who likes surprises. So she'd done a little bit of snooping in Paul's email, and she found an email from a jeweler, the kind of jeweler who makes engagement rings. I told Sonia that I have the utmost respect for that, because I, too, snooped in Nick's email, and I saw an email from a place called Brilliant Earth that makes sustainable wedding and engagement rings. This isn't an ad. I just really like my ring from Brilliant Earth. I saw the email in his inbox, and then I got a little tipsy that night, and I said, oh my God, are you going to propose tomorrow? And he said, maybe I won't now, because you snooped through my email. That's our story. Back to Sonia and Paul's. You left it on my computer. You left oh. your email open, so I okay, read it. So, so, okay, then yeah. I knew the ring is here. Left my email open. I yeah, mean, right. Okay, but in any case, and one night, she's... <laughs> Sounds terrible, but like she's literally barefoot in the kitchen doing dishes. Yes, I was cleaning up after <laughs> lunch or after dinner. After dinner. And he was not helping, right, Joe? So I was like, you need to get in here and help me with these. And he like comes in, he looks at me and he runs off. And I'm like, get back in here and come do these dishes. And he came in and I've got like suds on my hand and he drops to his knees and he shows me my ring and yes. I'm so excited, but I still made him finish the dishes. Yes. And, and so the reason like about somewhere around like uh, 20 minutes to a half an hour earlier, Sonia said something to me like, you know, I don't care when you give me the ring or even if you give me the ring, I just want to be with you. I was just like, I know she doesn't like surprises. This is the moment even though it's not a great moment, it felt like a moment that was completely genuine and organic. So I just dropped to a knee right there and 
and she remember, and I remember you dropping in the knee with me and just, we were just hugging Yeah, I floor. wanted to check the ring. I want to make yeah, sure. She wanted to... <laughs> I'm just teasing. I wanted to make sure it was right. Yeah. And then, and then from there, you know, we, we got married like, like a year later. Very soon after the wedding, they moved to Boston for Paul's job. And this just devastated Sonia as a native Texan. She cried the minute they crossed the Arkansas border and then again at Virginia. As an interracial couple living in Dallas, they'd received the occasional look, but nothing that they would classify as overtly racial. They completely expected people to be more open-minded in the North, and sometimes that was not the case. So we get to Boston. This real estate agent is uh, showing us around. You know, we were like, where do you guys want to stay? And I was like, well, I'm, I'm going to be working near Massachusetts Avenue, so we want to be downtown or somewhere close to it. And so we're looking in Cambridge. We're looking in a few other spots. And one night we're out for drinks, and she's saying, all right, well, tomorrow we could take you to, like, Jamaica Plain, where we ended up living. And then I said, well, what about South Boston? And she said, oh, I don't think you guys would be welcome there. This came as a big surprise to both of them, but less of a surprise to Sonia. Paul, as a white man from Iowa, had not really experienced discrimination or racism. He couldn't see it. He couldn't feel it in the way that Sonia did. Sonia had grown up seeing it and feeling it firsthand. And Sonia sort of had like this knowing smile. And I think she, I remembered her like snickering, but I still wasn't quite aware of what it was that she meant in that moment. And so I was like, what do you mean we wouldn't be welcome there? She's just like, you guys are not like that's there's no way in South Boston two people who look like you are going to be welcomed. Well, she didn't put it in such stark terms. But she certainly implied that, Joe. And it made me scared. You know, I was like going into this situation from a place that was very comfortable for me to a place where I thought, oh, my gosh, everybody here's got to be racist. And, and you know, and I would hear stories like that. You know, she would tell me other people would say, OK, you, you don't want to live in this part of town. You know, you want to like interracial couples will be more accepted if you live here. So that made me very fearful when people use that kind of language with me back then. But it ended up not being the case at all. No, I that was think. not. Yeah, that was. So we ended up moving to JP, Jamaica Plain, and it was it was fine. We were supposed to be, you know, escaping, quote unquote, uh, those racist tropes in the South. And when we come to Boston and we see them, or at least we hear about them stronger than ever. Now, I think that was probably an overreaction. We came to love Boston a great deal, but it was sort of jarring to to just like have somebody flat out say that to us about like just avoid this neighborhood entirely because of who you two guys are. Which we did. I Which think we ended up doing. Like we did we did not go to South Boston. No, like, but at then all. when we did go to South Boston, we were like, this is we were like, Fantastic. this place, these guys are, it was St. Yeah. Patrick's Day. So the first thing we thought it is, was, these guys crazy. are drunk. Yeah. And then the second really thing drunk. we thought was, um, these guys are really good drunks. These guys are, these guys are hospitable drunks. Great drunks. Hospitable drunks. Super nice. Yeah. I love a good drunk. Right? <laughs> they were good drunks. What I noticed when we moved to Boston, because we were just so unfamiliar with the area, that people were very good about like trying to be quote unquote helpful. And but telling us things that ultimately made me very fearful, you know, that fear that Paul doesn't necessarily, Paul doesn't have, you know, so there are situations where I would be like, okay, well, I'm a little hesitant to go to St. Patrick's Day, you know, in yeah. Southie because of X, Y, and Z. And he'd be like, no, 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 we're just going to go. We're going to do it. It'll be great. And so, you know, I would have reservations or, or friends would step in and we would say, okay, well, we're thinking about doing this. And 
you know, well-meaning people would be like, okay, well, if you go, then be careful because, you know, the, the underlying kind of message was there because you guys are interracial, it may not be the best place for you. So I always picked up on those messages. I don't necessarily think that Paul did, which like, time you definitely yeah. got better. Before the two of them had kids, they knew they had to have a conversation about their different backgrounds and about their heritage, about what that heritage and about what their skin color means to each of them. And it was important to me because my family is from Louisiana and my background is French and German and African and Native American. And so I would always get questions and I still do because people question, you know, are you black? You know, what is your heritage? And so with my children, I wanted to make it very clear for them that they are, they're African-American. And that's how they were going to identify because... Because that's how America was going to see That's how America them. sees them. Yeah. And so I had to have that, you know, I don't, I don't think you didn't anticipate that conversation. No, I was just thinking like, we'll just, they'll just be biracial kids and like, they'll be half black, half white. Like, what's the deal? It's like, and then you were like, no, 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 no. It's like, if they're black at all, basically, they're black, right? Yeah, well, it's it's perception. People are going yeah. to see them as being different and People, seeing yep. them as, as being... So white America is going to see them as being black and they need to be prepared for that. And, and so yeah, and those so, were deeper conversations much about deeper. race. Yeah, Paul and I definitely have had a lot of really tough conversations, even though we've been together for so long, are completely different when it comes to race. And so there's a lot of, I feel like, and, and you can certainly say if this is not true, from your perspective, which it is, because I'm I'm usually right about these things. We're faced with an interpretation of a situation where I see it one way and you see it the other. That happens. It's happened, it but it doesn't happen as frequently it as it used to. It doesn't happen as frequently as it used to. But yeah. like if we're talking about situations, you know, regarding the civil rights movement and what the environment was back in 60 and maybe like 63 and why black people would have reacted the way that we did. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that anger, you know, to come out of a place where like my parents came out of an environment where literally they created their own community. Yeah. They did not interact with anyone else outside of this very specific like Creole community within Houston that they had created, except to go like across town to go to work. You know what I mean? And yeah. so there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of resentment that grows up like you expect bad things to happen. As they had more and more of these conversations, Paul, as the writer, started to think, hey, maybe there's a book in this. Maybe having these conversations out loud in public is a way I can honor my family. He did more and more research into the history of race in America. And as the father of two black boys, there was one image in particular that stuck in his mind for years. And Joe, you, you've probably seen this photo. It's of a 15-year-old kid, an African-American, and he's almost like opening his side, his right side, up to a German shepherd who's about to clench his jaw around the boy's waist. And that image goes around the world and it becomes like perhaps the most iconic image of the civil rights campaign. And so I was kind of like obsessed to a certain extent with Birmingham in the years that followed, but I didn't really do anything with it, with that obsession until last summer. So Paul is immersed in this as a journalist and an academic, and his wife, Sonia, is a Black woman who doesn't just see the civil rights movement as history, but as something so much more personal. She lives racism. Paul researches it for his book. And that is a completely different experience. 
saw how, you know, my grandfather was segregated against at his job and when he was in the military. And so uh, the ideas that I think sometimes you see that come across in your research is not necessarily so black and white for me. It's much more nuanced. Oh, I completely agree with you there. Like part of the reason that I started to... Exactly. That's the correct answer. And part of the reason I began to research the book was really to sort of echo what Sonia was saying earlier, like try to guide the kids in my own way to help them understand who they are, not just within our house, but who they are within a broader community. And I thought that by researching, again, I wasn't planning on doing this book, but I thought that by researching the civil rights movement, I could at least like over the course of their childhood, tell them about, okay, like this is one of those singular moments that helped define the next, you know, 60 years of American discourse and history and all the rest. And I also thought it was important, you know, this work for you, Paul, because, you know, you are the father of two Black children, two Black boys. And you have a responsibility to raise two Black men who understand uh, how society will perceive them, how, you know what I mean? Like, it's a really complicated, complicated thing. What did you want him to think about that he might not have had to think about if he were raising white boys? That, you know, so Joe, for me, right? So Paul has, you know, I come back to this. He has a very wonderful kind of Midwestern kind of childhood where you, as a man, and, you know, as you raise your son, you work hard, you keep your commitments, right? That very yeah. kind of Midwestern, you know. Word is your bond. Yes. Sort of thing. Yeah. And that was the kind of thing that I knew, you know, Paul was going to try and instill in the kids, which he should. But to me, I needed him to understand that that's, there's more to it than that because these are Black children, you know, because these are Black men. You know, Paul had never been stopped by the police for driving in a neighborhood where, you know, he'd never been followed in a store, um, which I have been. He's never been denied service because of his race, which I have been. You know, he's never not received a, a promotion or, you know, experienced racism at work, which... Um, several members, you know, I, ha- I have tons of stories about people who've been discriminated against, friends that I know, myself. And so knowing that kind of responsibility, you know, what I felt like I needed to share with my children or what my parents shared with me, I needed Paul to understand that. And so that meant some really tough conversations, you know, Joe, because one, you know, Paul, I think most people who are not people of color or don't share that kind of cultural identity, don't assume that they have bias. They they have microaggressions or, or things like that. And so Paul and I had to do a lot of deconstructing of just ideas that he has about raising children. Like for, you know, just for a small example, it, I can say to my sons, like, yes, your word is your bond. But what if you do in a situation where you, you know, you're in a situation with someone who doesn't want to give you a deal at all because you're black. You know what I mean? He doesn't want to take your word because you're black. Like, how do you handle that situation? So there was a lot of just kind of, you know, like picking it apart, like an onion, like we would kind of sit down and say, okay, well, what is, what what would we do if this happened? Or how would you respond if this happened? And it still happens today. Like there, you know, there are different instances that come up where I'm like, okay, well, Maybe this is not a good place for the kids because it could put them in kind of a strange situation racially. And Paul's like, well, I don't think so at all. 
And so we have to have, you know, deeper conversations. It's a small thing, but like just even last night, I'm helping to coach one of our boys in Little League. And I look around the room and it's a whole bunch of dads and the dads are all white. And all of the coaches are white. It's not a huge thing or anything. It's just one of those things where it's like, I noticed that you now. Notice. Whereas, whereas before, before you did not I notice. Would not, and I, and I, would, exactly. I don't want to speak for any of the other guys that were there. But what I would say is I would strongly suspect that that thought never crossed anyone else's mind last night. When George Floyd's murder caused a much overdue national reckoning on race, Paul and Sonia's kids were 10 and 12. They were old enough for different kinds of conversations than the ones they'd had before. Tougher conversations. We'll get into that after a quick break. Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty, turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother Lorenza Marsala. The Sicilian Inheritance comes out on April 2nd, but it is available for pre-order right now wherever you get your books. And if you pre-order and email me your receipt to joe.piazza at gmail.com or DM me at Instagram, I will give you a free lifetime subscription to our newsletter Over the Influence. We'll be posting exclusive pictures, videos, and show transcripts for the very new season of Committed coming out in February. So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book. An ABC News special report. Now reporting, George Stephanopoulos. Good afternoon. We're coming on the air now with breaking news and the killing of George Floyd, who died on Memorial Day. There and when George Floyd is killed, it becomes really personal, really fast, because that was the first time that we, A, allowed the kids to see this stuff. They were eight and 10 at the time. And they had very strong reactions. Like one of our son was like, you know, why are they trying to kill us? That sort of stuff. We had to navigate through all of that. The footage was just so stark and raw. And also we felt the kids were old enough by then to begin to understand it. Like I Sonia, you were going to let me talk. Yeah, about I'm sorry. I sort of talked over Yeah, you did. Okay, go ahead. Um, so my philosophy, when the kids, you know, there's that whole thing where the kids, they don't identify race. And, and when race became an issue, when the, the, whenever the kids would come to me, my daughter is older. When she came to me and she pointed out that someone had mentioned, you know, the color of her skin or pointed out differences, that was my cue to start sharing with her the things that were going on. And same with the boys. So by the time George Floyd happened, they were both, you know, I mean, all three of them were very aware of their identity. They were very aware of my identity, the fact that we were in an interracial, you know, relationship. So I want to control that narrative when it comes to talking about George Floyd or, you know, any of the other, um, you know, racial, horrible, you know, just the things that are going on right now. I want to lead that narrative. I don't want them bringing stuff home to me that they've heard. So because of that, Paul and I, you know, I think maybe even at somewhat of my urging to really talk to them and tell them the truth. 
Yeah. So they understand that. Yeah. I remember one conversation with the boys where they were like, after George Floyd died, they're like, you know, why are the police doing this? Are all police racist? Are all white people racist? And then when I said, well, you know, I just, we, we mommy and daddy love you boys very much. You guys will just have, you know, we, we, we think you guys can do anything you want in this life. And Walker, one of our sons said, we'll just have to be careful. Right. And it was the way in which that I paused that I could see that in that pause, the boys sort of I think understood that no, even being careful is not going to necessarily protect them. And I think that's another reason to that this book is really personal because I feel like the the twins lost a little bit of their innocence last summer, and I want the book to, in some way, inform be informed by that. I remember there was a situation where I was at their school, right, and I was going to pick pick them up from school. And someone came out of the parking lot and hit me. And he... Hit with a car. He hit me with yeah. a car. Yeah, 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 Yes, he didn't come up because I would yeah. have laid him out, <laughs> yeah. right? That's a completely um, different story. Yeah, yeah, he hit me with his car. But he was white. Mm-hmm. He, even though he had been drinking, he got out and he was irate. He was irate and he was screaming at me. And he was like, I don't want you to call the cops because, you know, the cops are going to mess things up for me. And I was really scared. And in that moment, you know, my kids saw like how fearful I was. I called the cops and I told them, you know, we have to stay in this car because I don't know what's going to happen. Like, I don't know if they're going to take his side. You know what I mean? Even though to me it was a very, and they were scared. They were scared of the police. They were scared. And I was like, we have to stay in the car. We have to be really respectful of this process. Why the other guy is like standing out in the middle of the parking lot, like acting crazy. And so at that moment, they were like, we don't understand. Why do you have to stay in the car Why he can get out there? Yeah. And so I had to explain to him, like, as people of color, even though these police officers were our friends, like I knew these, you know, I knew some of them. They knew, you know, because of the neighborhood, it was still that having to explain to them, like, this is how you act when you are with a police officer. We don't have the luxury of getting out of this car and acting crazy like this this white man yeah and that for them was really shocking and it was tough to have to say that you know to to children that are so young but it's just the reality and i'm you know i'm doing it i'm talking to my parents and they're both like stay in the car and you know you know, I, it just it was really hard and i remember coming home and like i was shaken up about that experience altogether and the kids were upset about it too, but I was also really proud of them because, you know, they processed it in their own way. You know, we had lots of discussions about that. That that was the first time that they saw me be fearful, you know, and really have to, and they knew like, yes, we have to act differently. And so in subsequent times when I get pulled over, which by the way, Paul doesn't happen often, <laughs> Cause I'm not doing, I'm doing everything I need to do in the car. You know, the kids are always quiet. They're always respectful. Like they know, you know, they know that they, you know, we cannot act, we can't talk back. And then maybe those are luxuries that we don't have. And maybe their friends will have. And that's just a fact, uh, fair or not. That's just a fact of what we have to do right now in order to, to be a part of society, uh, the way that it's, it's set up right now. Yeah. Even though Paul is married to a black woman, and raising Black children, and even though he spends much of his personal and professional life grappling with race, there are people who still think it is very problematic for him to be writing this book about race. He's still a white man. 
a white man writing about the civil rights movement. What gives him the authority to do that? Joe, yeah. this book has been a road, right? Because how do you explain? Like you're talking about race in such a very sensitive time. And for Paul coming and writing this book, like it wasn't an easy pitch at all. No, it wasn't. Like I actually which is feel, really surprising. I feel like the proposal was actually stronger in some ways than the last. It felt so much more visceral. I mean, Joe, it just poured out of me. Like I wrote it like 12,000 words in like 10 days, which for me is quite a bit. I, I average about 500 words a day. And when I sent it to my agent, I just, the only thing I said was, there, I've said it. And then I sent it along. Like that, that, that was literally the, the subject of the email. There, I've said it. And he's like, when he read it, he's like, wow. So that's what you want to do. I'm like, yes, I feel like this is the book that we have to tell right but now. But publishers were afraid. Publishers were afraid. To and it's tell sort of the story. The, it's sort of the environment in which we find ourselves right now, right? Like how is... Paul qualified to tell the story of quote unquote blackness. Yep. Even though he is the head of a black family, like it's us, our children. And my mom also lives with us. Yep. And so literally he is the only white person in this house. And I have been the only white person in this house for, for the entirety of our house. I <laughs> would say so, yeah. Even when it was just Paul and I, it was it, it was, was my I house. I was always it was I was always I was, was always the lone white it's guy. It's my yeah. house. Maybe that maybe that should be the title of the book. The lone white guy. The lone white guy. Thank you. That's exactly. I wish we should put that. That would be good merchandise. Yeah, the lone white guy. But yeah, yeah, it was always like it was never a question. Like Paul just kind of fit into this cultural identity that I have that we created for our children that my mom and I have. You know what I mean? So it's. And sometimes when we talk about race now, it's actually about like the ways in which the, we talk about it from the black perspective. Yes, we talk we about talk it from about the black race. Yes, when we talk about it, we talk about it from the black perspective, and it's sometimes the ways in which like has the culture gone too far? Like, are we only identifying ourselves now by the color of our skin? And there are times right now in America where I feel, I at least feel, I don't know if Sonny feels this way, but I feel that America is sort of singularly obsessed with the differences between us that have to do with identity rather than the commonality that we share. Not just not to discredit those differences because of course yes, they're exactly. there. This is where Paul and I kind of differ, Joe, because my experience is different. Like I see this anger, I see this overcorrection as being, you know Necess- I don't want to speak necessary. Necessary. Yeah. But I think it's it's long overdue. Like you're talking about people who have been systematically oppressed for Years like what was it the conversation the other day where you got really a you know we were having a conversation and, and you were talking about like oh history they were going to rewrite history and you were like I don't understand do you remember that conversation yeah it was it had to do a lot with sort of postmodernism that I feel is gone too far where like there is no objective truth it is just any one person's truth and so often I feel that history is told increasingly from the perspective of those who are oppressed, which I want to be very careful here. I am not saying that those views should be excluded. My fear is that we are getting to a point where we are only discussing that. Like there's George Packer wrote an essay last year in the Atlantic that talked about like how kind of so far to the left progressive New York City public schools have become in his own mind as a progressive that it's like they aren't really even teaching American history anymore. And yes, and, and so this so is like this is Paul, one of the things that we go back not, and forth. Yes, on. because in my mind, I think that a lot of this is the result of something that has been brewing. Like this history was not written 
by... I agree with you completely. By, it, was, right. it was written by white men. Yes. Yeah. And so I feel like, you know, you have to really look at the source. So anyway, those are the kinds of things that we go back and forth on. Like, you know, my perspective coming in it from race. And so when we have these conversations in this house, I would say the majority of the conversations. So if we see something on TV, if we see something that we think it's offensive, it's something that we look at as Paul included as a black family. Maybe to put too fine a point on it, the conversations where we disagree, they tend to fall along like literally more academic lines. Like, is this actually the direction in which, you know, American education should be heading? Yes, because you're you're a snob. Like there are lots of African-Americans out there who share close relationships, partners, friendships, you know, whatever kind of relationships with white people, people of other cultural identities who have the ability to understand and process what we've gone through as a race. And those are really interesting stories. And when he was going through this process, Joe, I felt like, gosh, that's, I always feel like it's a much more unique perspective to see someone like Paul or yourself who come in and care about someone enough to truly experience what life is like in their shoes. Like you see it firsthand. Yeah. I want to know that story because to me, that's really interesting. So when Paul wanted to do this book, I was like, you know, this is such a unique way to tell this story. Yeah. I was surprised that people were not so supportive initially in the way that I thought they would be. And maybe in a different time, you know, I don't know. And then he had like these five meetings and some people were like, this is amazing. This is a great book, but we can't do it. Yeah, I literally heard that. And it was kind of insulting. Like there were some people who were just like, what gives you the right to tell this? And, I'm, and I almost wanted to say, what gives you the right to ask that question? Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. Do you live in my house? Like, have you, do you know what, what Sonia and I have been through? Like, do you, do you see this for yourself? No, I didn't ask that. My agent was very good at being like, don't say that stuff. <laughs> yeah, don't, I was like, don't say that. <laughs> Although I was hoping that he would get a really amazing reception, in my mind, because of my past experience, I was like, oh, well, it's quite possible they might, you know, there might be some, some, you know, kickback. And the, But Paul was like, like, just floored, you know what I mean? Like, he was ready to fight. Like, he was like, I cannot believe this. This should not be happening. You know, to someone maybe that had never experienced it before and was just like outraged and like ready to do whatever it took to get this book published. And I was like, well, you know, kind of knew this was going to happen. You know what I mean? Like I was prepared, even though I hadn't really thought it would happen. And Paul was like in an uproar, you know. And to me, it was like the very first time that I experienced like real racism as a kid, like as a six-year-old kid and someone calling me the N-word every day at a Catholic school, by the way, (laughs) I want to, I want to mention that just like the shock and horror of realizing like it's actually at your doorstep is something that I saw with Paul that, uh, you know, it was, it was just interesting because I mean, I, I certainly don't have that point of view, but he was livid. He was like, I cannot believe this. This story is so important. It needs to be told. And He was prepared to do whatever it took to get the story out there. And so was I, because I felt like it was really important as well. And in the end, publishers were too. Like, I want to be very clear, we did not, though the reception wasn't overwhelming, we did get a few meetings, we did get a few offers, and we're happy to go with with Celadon. Very happy, because they're, you know, very supportive. This is technically Paul's book. But Sonia, she's everything behind the scenes. The two of them even host a weekly podcast together about the process of writing the book. 
Sonia goes with Paul on most of his research trips when we're allowed to take research trips. And she is always his first reader and his first editor and really just the voice in his head while he's doing his writing. I dedicated the saboteur to Sonia for a reason because like, I'm amazing. Yes. And yep. because like she's incredibly important. She was the first read. She'll be the first read on this one. When I'm considering certain scenes or, or structuring the book in certain ways, she'll, she'll be the one, the first person I talk to. How has doing this work together, do you think it's, or writing, working on this book together, how has it changed your marriage at all? Has it made it better or worse? You know, the process of writing the book, right, Joe, is incredibly challenging, no matter when you do it. And this is his second one. And so the first one was really difficult because my babies were the same age. I think my daughter was three. The boys were one when you started the first book. It was very, you know, over here. I didn't have any family here. And so it was really, really challenging. And so we went through that process and kind of reassessed. And we talk a lot, we talk about all of it on the podcast. And so coming into this and starting this project, we figured out how to set it up as a business, as a structure, how it'll work you writing this book for the family. So what we can focus on is really when we have conversations, Joe, we talk about his research. We talk about what he's uncovered. We can talk about larger things in this story, where he thinks it's going. You know, he can ask my opinion about research or things he's found. This feels so much more compartmentalized. Like literally we've set up different bank accounts for the book, but then on, in our day-to-day lives, it is, okay, there's time to discuss the book And then once that time is over, there's family time or there's time with the kids or whatever. Whereas with book number one, it was just sort of like everything all the time. And honestly, it was like, for me, it was the book all the time. And it it made me a, a little bit sad that I had missed some things with the kids because I had been so singularly obsessed with the book. And so we're trying very hard with, with this book on Birmingham in the process of researching it and then ultimately writing it to But these conversations the that we're having, you know, are very natural conversations. It's not like we're talking yeah. about aristocracy, you know, and, and trying to, yeah, that's why, you know, that's why I like, I mean, of course my, 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 I think, you know, Joe, you, you probably know this as well as anybody, but like the first book is always the book where it's like, it's just a special place in your heart, right? Cause it's the, it's the first one and it's a big deal. This one is, to Sonia's point, like just so much more of a natural outgrowth of our day-to-day lives. And so it's been enjoyable in a completely different way. It just feels so much more organic to be doing a book like this because it's the sort of stuff that we talk about, that we live all the time. Like I mentioned, Paul and Sonia co-host a podcast together. It's called Now That's a Great Story. And it's a podcast about the process of writing a book, of how Sonia supports Paul in his work, and how the two of them get this life stuff done together. Back in May, after Oprah interviewed Prince Harry and Meghan Markle about their relationship, Paul and Sonia did an episode about how even though they aren't royals, they could certainly relate to Harry and Meghan's struggle as an interracial couple.
Hey, Sonia, how are you? Hello, Paul. So we watched, like millions of others, the Harry and Meghan Markle interview. Sonia, what did you think of it? Meghan and Harry. Fine, Meghan and Harry. Thank you. Quite a, quite a, quite a two-hour spectacle. It was amazing. And we wanted to talk this week about kind of us, right? Because we we do have, I mean, like we're not royalties, but we do have some similarities to them. In so definitely, we, you know, some of the things that they talked about definitely uh, touched touched some sensitive areas, like in, in our own journey together. Yeah, Harry talked for me. I mean, I'll just speak for myself. Harry talked a lot about the things that he had to try to learn. Just like coming to date a woman who's biracial, who identifies as black. Um, You know, he's coming from a very royal perspective. My own background is a very rural one. But, the but you know, the, the, the commonality there, it's, it's there, right? Like, we both had to learn what it means to fall in love with somebody whose experience is vastly different from our own and whose life experiences are vastly but different here, from our own. Here is something that I always thought was really amazing about what they said, and I think something very similar to our own story. They fell in love with each other without, I think, a real understanding of the other's uh, experience, like his experience as a royal, her experience as a black woman, um, you know, I didn't have any concept of what it meant to come from rural Iowa after living on a farm, and you certainly... I had no concept of what it meant to, to come from Fifth Ward in Houston. Yeah, no. I mean, you didn't... Yeah. You didn't know that. You see truths that a lot of people don't have the opportunity to see just by your life and your existence, you know, and that gives you a perspective that is is unique. I see, and this is going to sound... I see truth, and I also see true heroism. I see true courage in those protagonists from, you know, 1963, Fred Shuttlesworth well, yes, and, and also, you know, King and Megan and, and Mary. I mean, that woman mm. is being persecuted simply because of her skin, of the color of her Maybe skin. Maybe some um, no. anti Americanism as well. Maybe. Maybe, but she's. I mean, the headlines, the things that they yeah, write, the animosity, the, yeah. the vitriol that they have for this woman. You know, and like you said, if I think you still living, if you still came from that experience of the small town, you'd definitely be able to empathize. But that, I mean, that's, we were watching that, like, I was in tears. Yeah, you it, were it, riveted. It was, it, it struck very close in the same way that the Van Jones Van Jones crying struck very close, right? Like, I, I understood Harry. I understood why he wanted to get his family out of there. I would, too. But yes. Harry, you know, to bring it back, is in a position to talk about race now that he wasn't before. Yeah. And now that he has a a black child and he will have a black daughter, Yeah. he will be in a position, and so far removed, right, from that experience that he had so far removed, you know, you are so far removed from that rural, Yeah, you know, it's, I see the world with new eyes now. Yeah.
This episode was hosted and reported by Joe Piazza, with a very special thanks to Sonia and Paul Kicks. To find out more about Paul Kicks and his work, please visit paulkicks.com. That's paulkix.com. Supervising producer is Ramsey Yunt. Executive producers are Joe Piazza and Tyler Kling. Theme song and music by Tristan McNeil. For comments, suggestions, or to be part of the show, give us a call at 404-996-1173. That's 404-996-1173. Or send us an email at joe at committedpodcast.com. That's jo at committedpodcast.com. You can grab a copy of Joe's book, How to Be Married, on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Committed is a production of iHeartRadio and produced in our studios located in Atlanta, Georgia. Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty, turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother, Lorenza Marsala. The Sicilian Inheritance comes out on April 2nd, but it is available for pre-order right now wherever you get your books. And if you pre-order and email me your receipt to joe.piazza at gmail.com or DM me at Instagram, I will give you a free lifetime subscription to our newsletter Over the Influence. We'll be posting exclusive pictures, videos, and show transcripts for the very new season of Committed coming out in February. So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book.